Hello and welcome to the Iran podcast. I'm Negar Mortazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we talk about successful diplomacy with Iran, how negotiations worked under the Obama administration, and how the policy of maximum pressure has not really worked under the Trump administration. We also talk about the road forward for Joe Biden if he wins the presidency or for President Trump if he wins a second term and stays in the White House on how to successfully engage and negotiate with Tehran. My guest today is Trita Parsi, co-founder and executive vice president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and the founder and former president of the National Iranian American Council here in Washington. Trita, welcome to the Iran podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being with us. Let's talk about the showdown, basically, today between Iran and the U.S. at the U.N. Security Council. We just saw a fairly historic, as many U.N. watchers are saying, failure by the U.S. at the Security Council last week, um, trying to extend an arms embargo on Iran, which... Uh, basically, nobody voted for the U.S. resolution except for Dominican Republic, U.S.'s closest allies, the Europeans, France, Germany, U.K. Nobody um, sided with the U.S. And then now we have this other, uh, basically, strategy by the Trump administration trying to snap back sanctions on Iran at the U.N. How do you think that is going to play out. First of all, tell us a little bit about what the U.S. is doing as far as the snapback and the 30 days and how the Europeans and also Russia and China, who have veto power at the Security Council, are reacting to it. Yeah, so what you had in the JCPOA um, is, or actually it's it's in the U.N. Security Council resolution, um, is a rather new and innovative uh, mechanism that would allow any single country that is a party to the JCPOA to trigger snapback sanctions without the consent of the others, meaning that if a single country believes that Iran is out of compliance with the JCPOA, instead of having to go through the very lengthy, problematic, and uncertain process of reimposing sanctions, a mechanism was put in place in which a single country with a 30-day notification could snap sanctions back. And many of the American negotiators were quite surprised that the Iranians agreed to this formula uh, because it is an unusual formula. It's also a bit surprising that the Russians agreed to it because not because they want to try to protect Iran or so, but because the Russians have for the last 23 years uh, been very principally strong on the idea that all these kind of decisions have to be done without optimization. And I actually know the backstory that because I was in the Security Council when this whole thing came up back in 1998, when right, the United let's States, hear it. yeah, so the, in 1998, uh, the Clinton administration was making the argument that Saddam Hussein had not complied with a UN Security Council resolution. And um, instead of waiting for the Butler report to come, for the Security Council to be able to assess it, the United States actually decided that um, it was sufficient and that the answer of the Security Council should be that military action had to be taken. There was a very, very tense meeting in the Security Council in the back room. Uh, Lavrov was the UN ambassador at the time, and he was screaming at his lungs uh, uh, to the maximum because the interpretation of the Russians and many others, incidentally, was that if Saddam was found to be out of compliance or had violated agreement, the matter goes back to the Security Council and the Security Council decides what the next step is. The U.S. interpretation was that he's out of compliance and the response is military action. Um, Ever since then, the Russians have made sure that resolutions actually explicitly say that the matter goes back to the Security Council in order to avoid a scenario in which you have this automated response. And it's not just because they don't want the United States to respond without consultations. It's because they want to take 
make maximum value out of the veto they have and the vote they have in the Security Council? What's the value of that if so many things are done uh, automatically without the Russians being able to even have a say in it, let alone using their veto against it? So it was quite surprising to see that in the JCPOA, not only the Iranians, but even the Russians agreed to this formulation of a snapback. Uh, I never managed to figure out exactly what it was that the U.S. offered the Russians to get them to agree, but clearly there was something and it had nothing to do with Iran or the the nuclear issue. It seems to be uh, some sort of a concession the U.S. gave to the Russians on a different matter, probably something along the lines of NATO expansions and things of that nature that are very important to the Russians. So nevertheless, what is clear, though, is that only a participant of the JCPOA has this ability of invoking snapback. It's not a function or a mechanism that has been put in place for an outsider to invoke. And the consensus is that the United States is no longer a participant of uh, the JCPA because of the manner in which the Trump administration withdrew in May 2018 and mindful of the very statement they issued when they withdrew, which was the United States ceases to be a participant. So, but some folks in the uh, Trump administration are now trying to have their cake and eat it too and claim that uh, the U.S. is automatically a participant because it was negotiating the deal and using all kinds of totally unconvincing arguments uh, in order to make that case. But perhaps most importantly, the J- the, the snapback was aimed at preserving the JCPOA, making sure that an Iranian violation was punished in order to get Iran back into the deal. It was not a function that was put in there in order for someone to blow up the JCPOA, which is exactly what the Trump administration has tried to do for several years, what it tried to do this week at the Security Council. It was a humiliating defeat. I would say it was a historic defeat. I do not think there's any other example in which the United States puts forward uh, a resolution that only gets one additional vote in addition to its own vote, meaning the Russians and the Chinese didn't even have to use their veto to stop it. Now, let's take a step back and basically look at the past four years, past nearly four years of the Trump administration's policy towards Iran. Now, to remind everyone, it's a policy of maximum pressure, and it uh, basically picked up with President Trump first threatening and then eventually leaving the nuclear deal, the JCPOA, and reimposing crippling economic sanctions on Iran. Tell us your assessment of the past few years, the impact it's had, obviously, on the Iranian economy, and if any, Iranian policy, and basically, as many call it, the failure of these four years of maximum pressure in achieving any of the stated goals by the administration itself. Yeah, I mean, the stated goals of the administration has been everything from Iran seizing its regional activities, giving up enrichment altogether, um, changing its own regime. Uh, So clearly by the measures and and the metrics that the administration itself has put forward, nothing has been achieved by maximum pressure. The question is, were those objectives the actual objectives of the United States? Uh, or were they pretexts that were put in forward in order to adopt either a maximalist position that the U.S. would walk down once it got to the table, which is, if anything, perhaps the calculation that Trump had behind it, or measures that were put in place in order to make sure that the Iranians would never agree to negotiations, which I suspect is the intent of Pompeo and the Israelis and the Saudis and the UAE who were strongly in support of those type of measures. So I I think what it goes to is that there is a division within the Trump administration itself. I do think that Trump actually wanted a negotiation. He just doesn't understand how international relations work. And it's not the same thing as Manhattan real estate in which you can just squeeze subcontractors until they give up entirely. Uh, And on the other hand, people like Pompeo, Bolton, Netanyahu, MBS, MBZ, whose objective is to make sure that there are no negotiations at all and who would prefer there to be a permanent state of enmity between the United States and Iran for all kinds of different geopolitical as well as political reasons. 
But mm -hmm. looking at what has been achieved and what has not been achieved, it is clearly a failure. I hope that a couple of conclusions are drawn from this on the American side. On the one hand, that this very idea of sanctions and the idea of coercing states uh, to comply with all kinds of American demands has never really been particularly successful. But both parties, both Democrats and the Republicans, have been absolutely um, um, obsessed with the idea of using sanctions as a means of showing American power without using military force. But we see clearly now that sanctions is not this type of a magical tool that will get other countries to just capitulate to American demands. It was not a magical tool during the Obama administration either, even though many Obama administration completely overstated the role of sanctions when it came to getting negotiations between the United States and Iran and securing the JCPOA. I hope we draw a conclusion that is that we need to rely far less on these type of coercive measures and far more on incentives and, and clever diplomacy, um, uh, which has proven to be the reason as to why negotiations succeed, including in the case of JCPOA. The other thing I think is very important and a question that I feel is rarely asked, even at this moment where, you know, Pompeo is going to the UN Security Council, completely embarrassing the United States, fighting a fight passionately that everyone knows he will lose, and then ask ourselves, why are we putting all of this political capital on the issue of Iran? It is not that important of a country. It is not that important of a challenge, even a threat, particularly mindful of the fact that the JCPOA actually worked. Why are we so obsessed with Iran to the extent that we are willing to sacrifice an almost unlimited amount of political capital, ruin our relations with other allies and nations, embarrassing ourselves on the international stage? For what? This is the question I think we really have to ask ourselves, because in Washington, for decades, there has been this premise when it comes to understanding U.S.-Iran relations, which is that the Iranians have an obsession with the U.S. The Iranian hardliners have an emotional, irrational enmity and anger and hatred and sense of revenge against the United States. And that has been the main obstacle to actually getting any movement between the two countries. Without a doubt, there are people in Iran that are obsessed with the United States. There are people in Iran who have an emotional, irrational uh, enmity towards the United States. But this belief, this understanding in Washington was almost designed to exonerate ourselves from the obsession, from the irrationality that exists on the American side vis-a-vis -vis Iran, that always has existed on the American side vis-a-vis -vis Iran. But it's only now when it's so clearly and so nakedly out in the open that everyone should be able to see it. Having said that, I'm still very frustrated because most people still don't see it. Most of the articles about this rush to the UN and the snapback and all of these completely um, uh, absurd arguments in favor of snapback by the administration has still not really sparked that conversation of why are we so obsessed with Iran that we're willing to go to these absurd lengths to get our way. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a great point. And I want to return back to the point of sanctions a little bit later. But let's talk, let's continue this uh, topic for a little bit. Why do you think, I mean, it's a great question, but why do you think there is this obsession? Like you said, there is an obsession clearly on the Iranian side. It goes to the point of, you know, a chance of death to America and burning the flag and all of that theatrics uh, at almost every important political event. And it's been going on for four decades. And then arguably it goes even before uh, the Iranian revolution, the 1979 revolution, all the way back to the 1953 coup that's left uh, uh, basically dark memory in the Iranian psyche that's just beyond the political structure of the Islamic Republic alone. But talk about this obsession from the U.S. side. And I also want to ask you about the role that some of Iran's regional foes like Israel, Saudi Arabia, UAE play in shaping this obsession in Washington and across the U.S. towards Iran or basically, uh, if you may, hyping the, the level of threat that Iran poses to the United States um, that is projected from U.S. allies in the region. Yes, yeah, so I think there's a variety of factors and reasons, and some of those have been 
um, uh, existing for a certain period of time and at other periods of time, some of those factors may have been less important and other factors have become more important. So there's not necessarily one overarching continuous factor there. Um, so you mentioned a few. I, I, let me just go through a couple of things that I think have been important as of late. Uh, I think this administration has a lot of people in it whose political formative years were during the time of the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war. And they were mid-level, perhaps low-level military officials in Iraq who were extremely frustrated, not just with what the Iranians were doing against the U.S. and Iraq, but with what they felt was um, a weak, if not non-existent response from both the Bush administration and uh, the Obama administration, feeling that the U.S. should have um, uh, punished and um, confronted the Iranians much, much more aggressively back in 2006-2007 in Iraq and are uh, almost driven by a sense of revenge in which they feel like this is their moment now to be able to exact the revenge that they couldn't get 10, uh, 15 years ago. So I think there's elements in the NSC folks there who have that perception. I think there are, without a doubt, folks who, um, uh, on the one hand, are very sympathetic uh, and um, uh, deferential to what the Israeli prime minister is saying and is willing to take um, uh, follow his lead when it comes to issues such as Iran and other issues in the Middle East. Um, there are, you know, elements, I think, such as Bolton, who I think at the end of the day um, has his own obsession with Iran uh, that is not necessarily related to the agendas of other countries, but seems to be driven by more of an imperialist drive in which he really wants to make sure that any country that has challenged the United States is punished in the strongest possible way. Uh, just to throw out some interesting statistics here, I did a word search in his new book, and it turns out that Iran is mentioned 753 times in his book. Russia, uh, the EU, What is that, almost in every page? (laughs) Almost in every page, exactly. No, actually, almost twice on every page. Whereas Russia, uh, you know, many of these other countries, the EU, Obama, are mentioned somewhere between 100, 150. China, I think, was mentioned three or 400 times. North Korea, somewhere at 300 Pandemics, mentioned 22 times. Climate change, mentioned zero times. This is, I think, a clear indication of obsession because if you ask the vast majority of not just Americans, but also national security experts, they would clearly come down on the side that both pandemics and climate change, whether they believe that climate change is man-driven or not, doesn't matter, are major challenges. That's something that the White House and the National Security Council should focus on. In fact, the Pentagon is focused extensively on climate change. But that is mentioned zero times in his book. But Iran is mentioned 753. But I think there's, throughout this entire period, one factor that I think is probably the least understood factor, uh, but perhaps the most important factor. Not the only one, but most important one, which is this belief that the United States needs to maintain or at least aspire and um, uh, seek military hegemony in the Middle East out of a belief that the Middle East is so strategically important, that the oil is so important, that the United States not only needs to protect it, needs to make sure that neither a country in from the region or externally can achieve hostile hegemony in the Middle East because that would be a threat to vital American interests. You have the Carter Doctrine from the late 1970s in which uh, it was um, established that the United States would protect uh, oil, particularly Saudi oil fields in the region if they were attacked from uh, from the outside. And later on, that was amended during the Reagan years to also include threats from within the region. The question is, today, with a vastly different geopolitical context, We don't have a Soviet Union anymore. 
we don't have a scenario in which the oil is that important. In fact, from 2018 and onwards, the United States has been an oil exporter. It is only importing roughly 15% of its oil from the Middle East, whereas China is 40% above. Uh, Asia as a whole is consuming 70% of the Middle East oil. They are not paying for any of this, uh, but the United States is exacting a huge toll on itself with all of these different military bases and military presence that it has, as well as, of course, these two endless wars that are still going on there. And all of it comes down to this belief that if we leave the region, the region will fall into chaos or a hostile hegemon, whether that's the Iranians or the Chinese or the Russians, will come and take that over. As long as that is at the core um, foundational uh, basis of America's foreign policy in the Middle East, then you are going to have an overcommitment to the region and there's going to be an over-obsession with Iran because it is a country that challenges Pax Americana uh, in the Persian Gulf that has explicitly stated that it doesn't want to see the, the military presence or of the United States in the region. And uh, Keep in mind, when Obama, for instance, said we want to pivot to Asia and lessen America's footprint in the region, remember the outcry against that. Remember all of these voices and how dare you leave the Middle East. Even when Trump is saying that he wants to leave, you know, take out 2,000 troops from Syria, um, you know, that's when Mattis resigned. I mean, so much had happened for two years in that administration that definitely was worthy of resigning, but it was this the decision of pulling out 2,000 troops from Syria that was the final straw that broke the camel's back and caused Jim Mattis to resign. So this commitment, uh, however badly justified for hegemony in the Middle East, is uh, a very central element, however unspoken, uh, of U.S.'s policy in the region. And that directly puts the U.S. and Iran in uh, confrontation with each other. And I believe that as long as that continues to be the case, it's going to be very difficult to be able to find some sort of a modus vivendi between Tehran and Washington. And I think it was interestingly enough during a period in which Obama actually was quite eager of getting out of the Middle East. And he felt that it was, you know, just a, a black hole that took all kinds of resources, but nothing came, good came out of it anyway. That is under those circumstances that the U.S. also found itself much more amenable to finding some sort of a compromise with Iran, telling the Saudis, you have to learn to um, uh, get along with the Iranians as well, your neighbors, and we're not going to fix these problems for you. We've talked about the failures, but let's look at the one success story. The Basically, you mentioned the I could say the foreign policy, the legacy of the Obama administration, at least in the Middle East, the JCPOA, the successful negotiations with Iran, years of, of intense negotiations that eventually led to a very historic deal. In your book, Losing an Enemy, you mention that the U.S. side, as you just mentioned also here in this interview, thinks that sanctions basically force Iran to the negotiating table. And on the Iranian side, and I've heard this from many of my sources in Iran, they think that their progress in their nuclear program um is what basically forced the U.S. to to concessions. How is it that two sides basically can look at the same thing and come to such, you know, very different conclusions? Well, in some ways, they're actually very similar conclusions because both of them have this tendency, which incidentally a lot of countries have. It's not unique to the U.S. or to Iran, but it tends to be strengthened when a country... Um, rises in power and uh, increasingly believes that its power is the reason why um, uh, it gets its way, you overstate in your own mind the degree to which your coercive capabilities are moving things. And you underestimate systematically the manner in which actually the, the way you put forward incentives is eliciting collaboration from other countries. So that's on the one hand, um, you know, almost a psychological challenge that both of the countries have. But then there's also this political angle of it that perhaps is even worse, which is that both sides have this, uh, again, almost political obsession internally to make sure that they look tough 
vis-a-vis the other country. You know, it's very difficult for the Iranian political entity to come across as if they were soft in the negotiations against the United States, that they have to be really firm, otherwise they will pay a very high political cost. In fact, I do believe that some of these negotiations unnecessarily dragged on for domestic political reasons. Uh, Neither side wanted to give the impression, I think here the Iranians are more at fault, that they ended the negotiations too quickly because that could signal or leave the impression that they didn't negotiate hard enough. On the American side, it's almost worse. I mean, take a look at the language that many Obama administration officials use. It was, Iran must understand. Um, it, it was very much dictating to Iran what's going to have, have to happen. Whereas in the actual negotiations, there were also clearly much more of a uh, problem-resolving type of an atmosphere that was that had been created, but in the talking points externally, many Obama administration officials almost by habit ended up using language that made it sound as if the negotiation was all about the U.S. dictating to the Iranians what they had to do. But for political reasons, that made sense because you wanted to make it look as if you were really tough, that you were in charge, that you know, you're not there really negotiating a compromise, but you really are actually forcing the other side to do something they don't want to do. So politically, that's the signal they feel compelled to send because of the political culture, particularly the political culture between the U.S. and Iran in both capitals. But in reality, in the negotiations, and part of the reason why this was such a good negotiation and why it was built in such a way that both sides really had super strong incentives to keep it alive and a testament of it still being alive despite everything the Trump administration has done was precisely because both sides had to give something to get something and both sides got a lot and both sides gave a lot. But that is not a compelling political story to tell. It's much more compelling to say, look what our sanctions and our threats, etc., may the other side agree to. Um, I want to encourage everyone to read your book. Let me just introduce it properly. It's called Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran, and the Triumph of Diplomacy. And in this, you explain in great details of how the negotiations went on, what led to the success and all. And I want to basically ask you, again, looking at the in the inside of this success story, and, you know, putting yourself in the shoes of, of, let's say, President Trump or some in his administration thinking that, OK, it was the sanctions that forced Iran to come to the negotiating table. So I'm going to reimpose these sanctions and force Iranians to come back and negotiate a better deal with me. How did the Obama administration do it? And it was it took it took a few years. It took a long time from secret talks that started in Oman all the way to marathon negotiations in Vienna. How did the Obama administration do it that led to such you know historic success and the Trump sanctions basically what is the lack uh, what is lacking in the Trump strategy um, that is not moved in any way close to even the start of negotiations so there's so much lacking um, uh, and there was a lot of things lacking incidentally in the Iranian strategy but also in the Obama administration strategy. One thing I think the Obama administration uh, unfortunately perpetuated was this idea that because of sanctions, sanctions were so instrumental in getting this deal and what you do by constantly saying that is that you reinforce the idea that coercive measures are the trick that is needed in order to resolve a problem. Well, if people believe this false narrative, then they're going to draw the conclusion that you pointed out, the Trump administration had pointed out, which is, well, if sanctions are so great and you got this deal with that amount of sanctions, why not just use more sanctions and get an even better deal, which is the logic that the Trump administration has followed. Now, they have followed that logic partly because um, the Netanyahu government uh, convinced Trump that if he wants to get a better deal with Uh, Iran than what uh, Obama got, he should have just gone forward with more sanctions because if Obama had just stuck to the sanctions six more months, the Iranians would have capitulated. This was the promise that was given to Trump. It's completely false. It's proven false because, uh, and we actually saw some 
moments of irritation from Trump, I think about nine months into this process in which he was kind of frustrated as to why the Iranians have not caved, mindful of the fact that he imposed far more sanctions on them than the Obama administration did. Well, it's actually proven uh, that narrative false because what really elicited uh, cooperation from the Iranian side was concessions and positive measures by the Obama administration, not sanctions. And the Obama administration got to that point, not deliberately, but because they came to the conclusion that the sanctions path actually was not leading them to a better situation. They had exhausted the sanctions path. And instead of continuing on it and leading to the same scenario we have now with Iran, but under those circumstances, it probably would have led to war, Obama decided uh, to shift strategy and uh, put forward a very important concession to the Iranians in secret negotiations in Oman. In fact, if you want to, let me give some details of what happened there, because I think it's quite instructive for people to understand um, how this whole thing came about. In January 2012, then Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta stated publicly that Iran's breakout capability was at 12 months, which meant that if the Iranians decided to build a nuclear weapon, it would take them 12 months with the capability they had at that point to be able to have enough material for one nuclear weapon. By January 2013, at a time where the U.S. was imposing all kinds of sanctions on Iran, the Iranian breakout capability had shrunk, according to the U.S. intelligence, to 8 to 12 weeks, from 12 months to 2 to 3 months. Clearly, the sanctions clock was not ticking as fast as Iran's nuclear clock, meaning that despite of all of the sanctions, the Iranian nuclear program was advancing much faster than Obama could cripple Iran's economy. And if they just continued on that path, within a couple of months, the president would be faced with only two options. Either he would have to accept a de facto nuclear Iran, or he would have to go to war with Iran. Unless, that is, he was willing to fundamentally change the parameters of the negotiations. And that's what he decided to do. So a second meeting was set up in Oman. The first one was in July 2012. A second meeting is set up in March of 2013. And at that meeting, not only did they send a much more um, a bigger delegation, it was a very senior delegation, in fact, it was led by the number two at the State Department at the time, um, Ambassador Bill Burns, who is now the president of Carnegie Endowment. But also, for the first time ever, the U.S. negotiating team was allowed to put forward and use an instrument that they had never been allowed to even touch before, which was a very carefully crafted formulation on how and under what circumstances and what restrictions the United States was willing to accept enrichment on Iranian soil. This was Iran's red line. They had resisted all kinds of things and put up with all kinds of uh, sanctions, but they were very clear they will never give up enrichment. And as long as that was the case, there was nothing to negotiate. But if the U.S. is willing to accept that, things can happen. The U.S. strategy had been to actually play that card at the end of the negotiations because it was clearly and correctly viewed as the biggest negotiating card the U.S. had. Instead, because of the failure of the sanctions, the Obama administration realized that it had to play that card in order to get negotiations. And that's what happened in March 2013 in Oman it's what opened up the entire issue, and then it was formalized six months later at the UN in September um, when um, uh, the Iranians and the, the, now the uh, Rouhani government has come in um, and um, uh, negotiated between Kerry and Zarif. And what's actually interesting, the Iranians, the Rouhani government in the negotiations several times raised this issue in the negotiations saying that the biggest concession the U.S. had given was to the Ahmadinejad government because Ahmadinejad was still in power in 2013 when the enrichment card was played. And they were essentially using that as an argument that uh, the Obama administration needed to be more flexible with the Rouhani government than he had proven to be in the last couple of months of the Ahmadinejad government. What this story tells us is that the actual breakthrough was not because of sanctions. It was because finally the United States put forward a compromise and that compromise elicited a willingness on the Iranian side to also compromise. 
That's the true story, at least in my uh, assessment. And you can see the book. I have all kinds of quotes from folks from both sides telling this story, including the Omanis. But the compelling story, the one that wins you political points, is the one that makes you look tough, not the one that makes you look reasonable. I agree with you. And we, I guess, maximum pressure, four years of maximum pressure anyway, has proven that that is not the case. Because if it was, then why didn't the Trump sanctions and the coercive measures basically of the administration work? Exactly. Now, if we look at the Iranian side, we've talked a lot about the U.S. side, but looking at the Iranian side, we know the difference between Donald Trump and previous Republicans or even many Republicans around him, including his senior aide, someone like Mike Pompeo. The difference between him and them is that, at least he stated, that he wants to talk to Iran. He wants a better deal for Iranians. He has even called Iranian leaders very lovely men. And, you know, he said he could get along with them like the North Korean leader. Do you think that Iran has missed an op- and And from the Iranian side, there has been this resentment of, you know, any talks or meetups or photo ups or anything with Donald Trump. Do you think Iran has missed an opportunity by not basically thinking a little more creatively in its approach with this administration, with this very special Republican, which is Donald Trump, and try to basically at least open the door for for talks and negotiations with this administration in order to then in exchange basically reduce some of this tension or at least keep it high before it it got to this point? I think that's a great question. And in my assessment, my answer would be yes and no. Uh, And let me explain why. I think the missed opportunity was very early on in the Trump years, in which had the Iranians accepted engagement with Trump before he pulled out of the JCPOA, before he hired Bolton. Remember, Bolton was persona non grata for quite some time in the first year of the Trump administration. Given the fact that Trump knew nothing about foreign policy, all he knew that he didn't like the Iran deal because of Obama's signature on it. Um, What ended up happening by the Iranians not engaging is that Trump's entire education on Iran and the Middle East came from the UAE, came from Saudi Arabia, came from Israel, and it came from some of the folks um, who were supportive of Trump, who ended up working for Trump, because he opposed the Iran deal and they thought that he was going to be very tough on Iran. In fact, I spoke to one of those individuals and he said that when they sat down with Trump, they realized that he was opposed to the Iran deal, in his view, for all the wrong reasons. Because he actually didn't know anything about Iran. Uh, He was just very upset that Iran had struck a deal with Obama. That was the length of his um, opposition. And, And frankly, his big beef with the deal was that the deal did not lift sanctions on American companies. It lifted sanctions on European and Chinese companies, but it did nothing to allow him to build Trump hotels in Tehran. I personally actually agree with that assessment. I think that was one of the mistakes of the deal. It would have been better if it had been slightly bigger and included primary sanctions. It would have created a constituency in the United States that would have been more interested in defending the deal and protecting it. Um, But that seemed to have been his real beef with the deal, had nothing to do with, you know, Iran's activities in Syria and support for terrorism or all of these usual talking points. He knew nothing of that. So they had to educate him. So his entire education came from people who either had a political interest in driving an enmity with Iran or people who were obsessed with Iran for many of these other reasons that we mentioned before. And the Iranians were completely absent from that. Now, part of the reason why it was very difficult for the Iranians to do so is partly because they couldn't figure out Trump. There was that story of how um, Trump in September of 2017 is meeting with Macron and Macron mentioned that he had had a meeting with Rouhani earlier that day and Trump says, I want to meet uh, Rouhani, can you set it up? Uh, And Macron was like, well, you know, sure, let's see what we can do. And uh, Trump responds to him, tell him I'll be in his hotel room at 8 p.m. that (laughs) evening. 
the French conveyed this to the Iranians and the Iranians scratched their heads. Like, what is this? This is not how diplomacy usually works, right? So they, like everyone else, remember back in 2017, everyone's trying to figure out who is Trump, how does he function, etc., etc. And the Iranians were in the same position. I'm not saying it as an excuse. I'm just saying, put yourself in their shoes at the time, trying to figure out how to deal with Trump. The other thing, which is more their own fault, is that they had not shown the courage of allowing a meeting with Rouhani and Obama after the deal had been struck. As you know, there was an accidental run-in between Zarif and Obama at the UN, but there was no meeting between Obama and uh uh, and, and Rouhani. And as you know, there was an attempt to have a meeting before the deal and Rouhani pulled out of that. Instead, they just had a conversation. But then after the deal, uh, there was higher hopes that there could be a meeting that didn't end up happening. And the Iranians were again looking at it politically. How will Rouhani defend not meeting with Obama, who struck a nuclear deal, but then go ahead and meeting with Trump, who says that he hates the deal and he wants to kill it? These were some of the factors that caused them not to do so. I think that was a missed opportunity because after rejecting Trump, Trump's instinct and the instinct that is also fueled then by these other folks and countries that want him to have a tough line on Iran is, of course, oh, the only reason you didn't get it is because your sanctions were not tough enough. You need to get tougher. You need to get tough. Whatever yet happens, the answer is more sanctions, more coercion, more toughness. And that's the path. Trump chose. He may not have chosen that if there had been some degree of engagement between the U.S. and Iran in those early months of the Trump administration. Hmm. And um, basically, so now the U.S. has withdrawn from the JCPOA. There's been years of maximum pressure of intense sanctions. Even during a pandemic, the Trump administration hasn't agreed to ease sanctions despite international calls and, in fact, has intensified them. And now the showdown at the Security Council, the assassination of Iranian General Soleimani and all of that, it seems like there is no hope for any kind of engagement, at least until the U.S. election, which the Iranians are watching very carefully. Now, let's talk about after the election. If um, First, let's talk about a potential Biden presidency. If Joe Biden does enter the White House, what is the path forward? Because he's going to have very little time between him getting into office in January and Rouhani leaving his second term as president in summer. What is the path forward for Joe Biden to basically reduce tensions with Iran and get back on the track of diplomacy? Well, as you pointed out in our webinar a couple of months ago, there's only three and a half months of opportunity to do something quickly because most likely the elections in Iran in May of next year will produce a conservative president and then you'll have a scenario in which there's a conservative executive branch, there's a conservative parliament, and of course the supreme leader, whether it's him or someone else at that time, is going to be a conservative. And this may in some ways close uh, the opportunity, at least when it comes to the JCPOA itself. What I worry about is this. On the one hand, my the signals I'm hearing from the Biden administration is that they're going for compliance for compliance, which means that the U.S. aligns itself uh, and complies with the JCPOA as long as the Iranians do the same and reverse some of the steps they've recently taken. That does not mean necessarily a U.S. rejoining the JCPOA. And that may actually be a smart move because if there is going to be a rejoining, meaning that the U.S. is once again a formal participant, there will be people in Washington who will say, well, you shouldn't rejoin without a renegotiation, particularly mindful of the sanctions that have been imposed, etc. Iran is in a weaker position. You should try to negotiate a better deal, which whatever the intent is essentially becomes the same position as Trump is having, right? Because he's saying he's having these sanctions because he wants to negotiate a better deal. On the other hand, if there is going to be a rejoining, the Iranians may, in fact, I think it's quite likely that they will say, well, there's going to have to be a re-entry fee. So if there is going to be a rejoining, then there's a likelihood, and a rather high likelihood, I think, that the Iranians are going to say, well, you have to pay a re-entry fee because for three and a half years, You've been crushing the Iranian economy. You've imposed all kinds of costs, not just on Iran, but on the Europeans and others. You can't just recklessly withdraw and then think that everything is fine and you come back in. So, and for political reasons, the Iranians will be pushing that very hard. Anyone 
on the Iranian side that agrees to forsake, forego that request will probably pay a political price. Over here in Washington, there will be people who will say that uh, Biden is showing weakness by not asking for a new negotiation and, and new concessions from the Iranian side. A way of avoiding all of that is just to do uh, compliance for compliance right away. But that nevertheless requires some clear signaling from the Biden folks now to the Iranians that Biden is not going to seek a renegotiation for the JCPA will open, uh, be open to a negotiation on top of the JCPA, but not for the JCPOA itself. And the reason why that is important to signal is to make sure that the Iranians don't start doing a lot of bad things now in order to improve their situation for a future negotiation. If Biden clearly says, I want to renegotiate the deal, well, guess what? Then the Iranians are going to start withdrawing from other aspects of the deal, perhaps withdraw from the deal altogether, perhaps even withdraw from the NPT, and then use that as leverage for the negotiation that Biden has signaled that he wants. That would be a huge mistake, mindful of how difficult it was to get the parties together in the first place. Mm -hmm. So I think it's critical to clearly signal no negotiation. Let's just do a, a compliance for compliance. And then there can be negotiations on top of that. But the thing that worries me perhaps most of all is that if Biden becomes president, can you just imagine the amount of crisis internal and external that he's going to have to deal with on day one. And within that context, how much priority and bandwidth will he be able to give to the Iran issue, mindful of the point you made earlier on, which is he will only have a couple of months time to make sure that he gets that straight. He does not have infinite time because the political situation in Iran is very likely to change. That worries me because he's going to be overwhelmed with so many issues. And I fear that the Iran issue may not end up getting the degree of priority that it's needing in order to make sure that things go back to some degree of normal within three and a half months. And then afterwards, even if there's a, uh, a hostile president in Iran afterwards, that necessarily does not mean that the JCPA will be in jeopardy. Mm -hmm. Now, let's talk about the other scenario and there is a chance that Donald Trump is going to stay in office, have a second term, and we're going to know that by November. Now, assuming that happens, if the Trump presidency continues, what do you think is the path? If, is there any chance for engagement with Iran? We know that the Iranians have been asking the U.S. to reenter the JCPOA and basically take it from there. But do you see any scenario for Donald Trump to basically change course maybe not have Mike Pompeo as Secretary of State or any other changes in the administration to then open door for real, uh, meaningful diplomacy with Iran? Uh, I would not rule it out for the simple reason that Trump has shown himself capable of doing 180-degree turns uh, in, ma in a way that other presidents not only did not know how to do, but would also not like to do. So I think that possibility cannot be excluded, but it would require a whole set of different things. As you pointed out, if Mike Pompeo is Secretary of State, it won't be convincing and it won't work. Uh, and I'm not just saying that because Pompeo has shown himself to be so hostile in the negotiations, but it's also because the Iranians are convinced, because the Russians, the North Koreans, and others have told them, that even though you make a deal with Trump, which Putin can make with Trump, has made with Trump, Kim has made with Trump, it doesn't lead to anything because Pompeo and Bolton and others sabotage its implementation. And forget about a deal with Kim or with Putin. Just see Trump saying that he wants to pull out of Afghanistan or he wants to pull out of Syria. How much resistance within the bureaucracy, as well as from his own senior people he gets. I mean, the foreign policy that the U.S. is conducting uh, in Syria on the ground, as headed by Jim Jeffrey, seems to be a dramatically different one from the one that Trump says that he wants and that he thinks is actually taking place. So that scenario is still a very um, major obstacle for the Iranians to be willing to engage Trump because they will not have confidence that Trump can deliver on what he promises because he continues to hire people that sabotage his agenda. But beyond that, you also have the issue of um, whether there will be so little trust and confidence 
not just in Trump himself, but in the idea that a future administration will honor and respect whatever Trump decides. All kinds of questions of reliability are now uh, at the top of the heads of friends and challengers and enemies of the United States alike, mindful of the chaos that we've had in the last three and a half years. What really worries me is that if there is a small opportunity early on in the Trump II administration, and for whatever reason it doesn't happen, perhaps the Iranians do not respond positively, they're too hesitant as they were in the first months of the Trump administration or the first Trump administration, that we will then be in a scenario in which the Iranians will conclude clearly waiting out Trump did not work out because Trump got elected. And if the Iranians could wait three years, that's perhaps fine. They cannot wait an additional four years. Now they have to go back to actually exacting a price for the pressure that Trump is putting on Iran because Trump will not cease putting pressure on Iran unless it starts becoming costly to Trump. And so far, it's not been particularly costly. And that will lead to the Iranians, potentially under a conservative president, dramatically increasing uh, their counter pressure against the United States. And that will definitely increase the likelihood of a military confrontation. You also have another scenario, one that I'm not as convinced by, but is also not implausible, which is that many of the conservatives are not dead set against making a deal with the United States. They're dead set against making a deal with the United States that is done by their political rivals and their political rivals get the credit for it. So much of what has been happening in Iran internally for the last uh, four years is that the conservatives are trying to make sure that the, the JCPOA gets a very bad name in Iran, not necessarily just for making the deal with the U.S., but essentially saying this is Rouhani's fault, this is the moderates and the centrists' fault, they did a bad deal, they should not have trusted the U.S. in the manner that they did, and, and really weakened them. But once they're in a very comfortable position, they have the supreme leaders backing, they have the presidency, they have the parliament, perhaps they will be more willing to do it, but on their own terms and make sure that they get the political benefit of such a deal rather than having to either see other political factions get it entirely or um, uh, have them share a bit of that credit to them. So there's a lot of unknowns in the next couple of months uh, in terms, particularly in terms of a Trump two administrations. The danger there is that those unknowns, the spectrum is extremely wide. It can go everything from a potential new deal all the way to a very, very dangerous military confrontation. Trita Parsi, thank you for joining the Iran podcast. Thank you so much for having me. That was Trita Parsi, co-founder and executive vice president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft here in Washington, and the founder and former president of the National Iranian American Council. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Iran Podcast. You can subscribe to us on your podcast apps, and please don't forget to rate and review the podcast. You can also sponsor the podcast and help us continue the project and be independent. You can follow us on Twitter at Iran Podcast, where we post about our future guests and upcoming episodes. Until next time, goodbye.